All right, we want to take a break now to thank one of our sponsors here. You know, we only like to promote and talk about products that we genuinely love here. And here on the podcast, we love our bull and branch sheets. Uh, We've had them in our house more than a year. Jill, I know you have as well. Most, we are huge fans of bull and branch. And if you don't have bull and branch sheets already, what are you waiting for? It's a new year, new you, new sheets. And if all of you with your resolutions are working out, trying to eat healthy, give yourself the gift of some soft sheets. It's a New Year's resolution you can achieve. Bowl and Brand sheets get softer with every wash. We have a few sets here in our house. They're made with 100% organic cotton. They don't have those toxins, those synthetic pesticides, harsh chemicals that many other brands have. So they're especially good if you have sensitive skin. Moshe, that's a big issue in my house. The sheets are good for all seasons. They'll be great. They'll keep you cool in the summer. They'll keep you warm in the winter. And right now, we have a special deal going for the Mo News community. On your first order of Bowl and Branch, you can get 15% off. Just head over to bowlandbranch.com. That is bowl, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Use the promo code, what else? Mo News. Keep in mind, exclusions do apply. So see the site for details. Hey, everybody. I want to thank you for joining me for another Mo News conversation. In addition to the daily podcast, we try intermittently as often as possible to bring on major newsmakers and experts to help us break down the headlines in the news. And so I'm very excited today to present the second part of our three-part conversation with former CIA acting director Michael Morell. Today, we are going to drill down on all things Al-Qaeda, the war on terror, Afghanistan, and he's going to take us inside the White House Situation Room. I had a great opportunity to sit down with Morell recently to talk about challenges all over the globe. You might have heard part one of our conversation last week on all things China, Taiwan, following that Pelosi visit. It's a fascinating conversation. I urge all of you after this podcast to go back and check out the August 10th edition, dubbed former CIA boss talks China war threat. So you can listen to part one after this. And next week, we'll have a part three for you. I'll tell you about that in a second. But let's talk about today's edition. This week marks the one year anniversary of the fall of Kabul to the Taliban. The major concern with the U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban takeover was whether groups like Al Qaeda could quickly reorganize and pose a new threat to the U.S., In my conversation with Morell, you will get a sense of where things stand. I talked to the former CIA director about his latest assessment on what is taking place there on the ground, which terror threat we should be worried about, whether it should be ISIS, Al-Qaeda, what the situation is there. And I think you guys will be very interested to listen to how he takes us inside the Situation Room, how a president makes a call to assassinate a terrorist. What's notable about Morell's experience is he spent more than three decades at the CIA, rising up to deputy director and acting director of the agency twice. He worked with multiple presidents, and notably, he was the only person who was both with President Bush on 9-11, he was the briefer on 9-11-2001, and he was also with President Obama in May 2011, when bin Laden was brought to justice, he was inside the Situation Room. He briefed him. And so Morell will take us inside how they make the decision, how he makes recommendations, how presidents ask him for what percent likelihood he thinks what he's saying is accurate. It's fascinating. I think you'll really enjoy it. I had the great opportunity to work with Morell when he became senior national security contributor over at CBS News while I was running the evening news there. I would often turn to him for analysis, 
for major events like, for example, two weeks ago, the Zawahiri assassination. In addition to working at CBS now, he is also the host of the Intelligence Matters podcast. Recommend that all of you check out that podcast. He speaks regularly with top leaders from the U.S. intelligence community who reflect on their life, on their career. It really gives you an inside glimpse into how the CIA works, into how decisions get made, and what life is like at the agency and abroad. Michael Morell is always very gracious with his time. I have a good fortune to check in with him every few months when major happenings are taking place around the world to give us a sense for how the intelligence community is thinking about these things and has thought about these things. When we taped this edition earlier this month, we had just learned that the U.S. had assassinated Ayman al-Zawahiri, al-Qaeda's number two. So that is where we began the conversation. So, Mike, I want to start with the headline that Ayman al-Zawahiri was brought to justice. Um, given how much of your time at the agency was devoted to al-Qaeda, the global war on terrorism, how big a deal is that? Why did it take 21 years? What does it mean for you personally? I have a whole bunch of questions, but talk to me about your reaction when you saw that headline and, and its impact. Yeah. So my reaction was, I had a bunch of reactions, Mosh. Um one was that um, this guy um, was the number two um, in al-Qaeda uh, for 9-11. Um, he was part of the senior leadership of the group um, that, that uh, conceived and um, carried out 9-11. Um, so bringing him to justice was you know, important um, for, for all of us, but particularly for, for the families of the victims. Um, you know, President Bush used to keep a chart of all of those Al Qaeda leaders who were um, in some way involved in 9-11, um, and he would cross them off as they were captured or killed. Zawahiri was the last guy um, who was significantly involved in 9-11, who had not been captured or killed, and now that chart is complete. So that was, was kind of thought number one. Um, Thought number two was, um, despite the war in Ukraine, despite the pivot to China, the United States continues to focus on terrorism and focus on al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Um, and that's a good thing, and that's important. So I was very glad to see that. Um, third thought I had was that um, this is going to make life more difficult um, for al-Qaeda in Afghanistan to achieve what it wants, which is to rebuild the organization. That's That was Zawahiri's goal. That will undoubtedly be the goal of his successor. And this will make that more difficult. Um, you know, it'll take time to, to, to decide on a successor. That's time they won't be rebuilding. Um, the new leader will transition, right, from whatever position that person has now to the leadership. There's a learning curve there. So, you know, that will slow them down. But most important is this sends a message to any al-Qaeda member in Afghanistan that they need to worry about their security. And, and that's the most significant um, consequence of these of these targeted killings is it sends a message to everybody that you have to worry about your security. And I think given the way that Zawahiri was behaving in this compound, you know, walking out regularly onto a balcony, that he wasn't that worried about his security. Um, and if you can if you can make terrorists worry about their security, that's a lot less time they have to worry about rebuilding the organization 
and attacking you. So I thought about all of those things when I heard that uh, Zawi Hiri had been removed from the battlefield. Yeah, I found the, the headline remarkable that he was in Kabul, not far from the presidential palace, not far from the defense ministry. What does that say about what he was thinking? And what does that say about how the Taliban is ruling these days? Uh, so the Taliban had repeatedly told us that al-Qaeda was not in Afghanistan. Um, and it was a lie when they said it um, because al-Qaeda was there. Al-Qaeda was fighting with them. Um, and, of course, it was it was shown to be a lie when we found Zawahiri um, in Afghanistan. And by the way, we just didn't find him in Afghanistan. We found him in a posh Kabul neighborhood. We found him in a in a very large compound, very large home that um, is reportedly the home of an aide to Siraj Haqqani. Siraj Haqqani is the Afghan Minister of Interior. He led the Haqqani group, um, which is part of the Taliban, the most violent part of the Taliban. The, the Haqqani group was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American soldiers in Afghanistan. Um, and here, here's how here he was right in the home of, of one of Siraj Haqqani's aides. So this just puts a final stamp to the lie that Al Qaeda has been telling um, that that the Taliban has been telling that Al Qaeda is not in Afghanistan. Just ridiculous. What is Al Qaeda these days? I mean, many of us, uh, you know, who, who lived through 9-11 um, saw those attacks, saw their international reach, their capability of, you know, training, training camps, organizing these hijackers, planning this really um, re remarkable attack in the years since we've heard about their regional Al Qaeda's uh, and their attempts at kind of smaller things. You know, given Zawahiri's gone, we haven't heard much from al-Qaeda, at least in terms of vis-a-vis -vis ISIS and some of these other threats in recent years. What is al-Qaeda today? Yeah, and do question. you see them, I mean, yeah, I mean, do you see them continuing to pose a significant threat? And in what sort of threat as compared to especially what we saw in 9-11? Yeah. So um, prior to 9-11, al-Qaeda was really just in Afghanistan. Um, and of course, they conducted the 9-11 attacks from there. Um, after 9-11, um, um, a large group of them went to Pakistan, um, where they continued to plan, um, quite frankly, where they conducted the, the London bombings from um, and where they did a lot of other planning from. Um, a smaller group of them went to Iran, where they were put under house arrest, um, and, and a smaller group actually spread out around the world. So some of them went to North Africa, some of them went to Yemen, some of them went to Southeast Asia. So um, they became, you know, you know prior to 9-11, concentrated in Afghanistan, after 9-11, really spread out. Um, but, but in the decade after 9-11, the strongest piece of al-Qaeda was, was the al-Qaeda group in that no man's land between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, but the U.S. spent um, a lot of resources degrading that group. Um, and we used to call that Al-Qaeda core. Um, that's, that's the group that, that bin Laden led. That's the group that Zawahiri led after bin Laden was killed. So that group had been, I'd say, decimated really by U.S. counterterrorism operations from 2000, you know, 2000, uh, um, um, 2008 to 2012. Um, and they really haven't bounced back, um, but they were really hoping 
They were really hoping that um, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan would give them an opportunity to rebuild that al-Qaeda core. Now, meanwhile, in the rest of the world, um, you have you have other al-Qaeda groups that are tied to the main organization in Afghanistan who, who still have um, significant capabilities. So you have, you have something called al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb in North Africa um, that regularly conducts local attacks. You have al-Qaeda in Somalia called al-Shabaab, which many counterterrorism folks in the U.S. government would tell you is the most dangerous terrorist group in the world today. You know, there's a Somalia de, there's a Somalia de, um, um, diaspora in the world that they can blend into, including in the United States. So, so when lot, you say most dangerous, you mean international reach? You mean biggest yes, attacks? Yes, yes, international reach, and they they conduct a number of attacks in um, Somalia, of course. But there is a concern about their international reach. And then you have Al Qaeda in Yemen, um, which was the strongest of the regional groups for a period of time um, and has been weakened since, but you have to worry about it since, since Yemen is a failed state. It's a no man's land. There's a lot of room to maneuver for them there. So, so the, the affiliates, the regional affiliates are actually stronger than the core, but the hope was that Al Qaeda could rebuild that core um, in Afghanistan. And, and where are they there? I mean, is there reason to believe as Americans, that 21 years on from 9-11, that al-Qaeda has any capability to do anything like what they did 21 years ago? So we just had the FBI director um, testify that um, that al-Qaeda in Afghanistan does pose a threat. Um, you know, I tell you that um, um, I don't think it poses a threat to the homeland today, but it probably increasingly poses a threat to U.S. interests, you, you know, um, out in kind of the near abroad, right? That area outside Afghanistan. Um, mm-hmm. but, but if we, if we allow it, Moshe, if we allow it to rebuild in Afghanistan, they will eventually develop a homeland attack capability. And that's why paying attention to what is happening there from an intelligence perspective, and then being able to reach out and action a target like, like we just did with Zawahiri is so important. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so, I was so gonna say, we, 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 when we spoke a year ago, you were very concerned about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, making it very difficult for us to maintain uh, our uh, level of, of intelligence and our capabilities. Yes. And, 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 and I think one of the things that this counterterrorism operation showed, right, is that the over the horizon capability that the president talked about um, does work. Um, but it, but, but, but in terms of collecting intelligence, it is more difficult, right? If you're not on the ground for, for certain. Um, but once you do find a target, once you, you find a target and you, you know, you're able to take a drone there, then you're able to, you know, watch for pattern of life, um, and, and watch for the right moment, right. Um, to, to carry out your operation so you don't kill civilians. Um, but it's that intelligence, right, that you need to take you to that particular spot. Take us inside, Michael, how a decision to take out Zawahiri is made, especially, so, you know, given, yeah, g- so, given uh, your experience with bin Laden. For those who don't know, how, how many people, how many years, how these assessments go to the president? T- take us through that that uh, decision-making process. Yeah, so... Um, you have to find the person, right, at a particular point on the planet. 
You know, we did that with bin Laden. Um, you know, I know how we did that. Um, we obviously did that with Zawahiri. I don't know how we did that. I don't know how we found him in that compound. Um, but once you, once you find them with intelligence, then you are able to take any number of intelligence assets. In the case of Zawahiri, it sounds like it was primarily drones. And you're able to watch. And you're able to watch for long periods of time. Um, to see what the pattern of life is, right? To see when the person is alone, to see when the person is not alone, um, to see who else might be with that person, what other senior Al-Qaeda leaders might be with that person, right? You're able to really study it. Um, and then at some point you go to senior policymakers and you say, here's what, here's what we have, right? Here's why we think this is bin Laden or here's why we think this is Zawahiri. And here are the options that we have to quote action this target and actioning the target can mean killing the target um, or actioning the target can be can mean capturing the target um, and the you, you know the senior national security leadership makes a decision on on their confidence in the intelligence and it makes a decision on which option that they want to pursue um, you know, in, in this case, in, in, in terms of Zawahiri, it sounds like, you know, people were pretty confident that it was Zawahiri coming out on that terrace. Right. Um, and it sounds like they they didn't give a lot of thought to, you know, sending in a SEAL team. Right. To get him. Um, it's, it was pretty clear, you know, that that the only way to do this without putting um, without putting U.S. servicemen and women at significant risk, you know, was to do a drone strike. And then. Once you make that decision, right, you want to minimize collateral damage, right? Because collateral damage can, you know, turn people against you, right? Um, and make it more difficult in the future for you to carry out actions like this. Might even create more terrorists, right, at the end of the day. So you want to minimize collateral damage. And it sounds like the administration spent a lot of time figuring out what's the right moment to take this strike so that we minimize collateral damage. That's basically the process. Take us inside the situation room. What types of questions does the president or have you had the president ask you? How, how does that process work? How many meetings? I, my understanding based on the media reports is there were multiple meetings with President Biden over the course of the past several months. What types of questions um, have you been asked and how do you give them the uh, assurance, if you will, that uh, this is the person yeah. and this is the right approach? Yeah. So you don't you don't give assurances on on either of those things, right? You don't, your job is not to assure them. Your job is to tell them um, what you actually believe. So, you know, in case of bin Laden, um, we didn't have direct evidence that he was there. It was just circumstantial evidence. Um, and because of that, people's level of confidence that he was there was all over the map. Um, you, you know, some people thought there's a 95% chance he was there. Some people thought it was 80%. I was 60 um, and I remember the president asking, um, asking Director Panetta, Leon Panetta was then the director of the agency, you know, why are people all, all over the place on the probabilities that he's there? And Leon turned to me and said, Michael, you know, can you answer the president's question? Um, and, and what I said was, was, Mr. President, I think that people are washing these probabilities through their own experiences. So these counterterrorism analysts who started working on Al-Qaeda after 9-11, when we've had nothing but success after success after success of stopping plots, of taking 
Al Qaeda guys off the battlefield, you know, they're washing it through that, that, that set of, of experiences of success. I'm washing it through the experiences of Iraq WMD when we were wrong that Saddam mm -hmm. had, had weapons of mass destruction. And then I have said, Mr. President, one of the things you need to know is that the case that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction is even stronger, was stronger than the case that bin Laden is about, is in that Abbottabad compound. Wow. So a friend of mine told me you could hear a pin drop in the room. So I wasn't assuring, right, the president that he was there. I was just telling him what I thought. That's the job. You know, he asked, um, he asked so many questions that we put together a really thick binder with the answers to all the questions he asked, right? He asked, um, you know, if we capture him, what will be the impact on the group versus killing him? If we kill him, how do we... How do we bury him? Where do we bury him? Um, you know, what's the risk? What's the risk that the compound is booby trapped if I send Navy SEALs in there? Um, you know, to what I'm, I'm putting them at risk to begin with. But if the compound is booby trapped, I'm putting them at more risk. Um, you know, so just you could just hundreds of questions he asked um, that we answered every single one of them, you know, not to not to sell the operation but to 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 fully inform his decision making. I'm, I'm fascinated here because you have such a unique lens into some of the most important decisions, if not the most important decisions the commander in chief makes uh, as part of the responsibilities of being president. As we get, you know, we're going to head into another election cycle here uh, in a couple of years and, you know, you vote for president. Michael, what, what do you as you from your experience, from your vantage point, what a what are the most I, the most important characteristics a president needs to have, given where you sat, given what you briefed on, you know, as as average voters make their decisions on on who should be the commander in chief? Yeah, I've never thought about that actually. Um, it's a good question. Um, character, I think, is incredibly important. You know, you're put into you're put into situations where particularly when you're speaking to the American public, you know, you're put into situations where it, it, there's an incentive to spin. There's an incentive to um, not be fully forthcoming. Um, and I think character is extraordinarily important when you're um, speaking with other foreign leaders and you're talking to the American public about what it is you're doing. I think character is, might be the most important issue. Two is um, intellectual curiosity you know, to ask all those questions, um, you know, the intelligence community and the military, when, when they're briefing the president on intelligence or military options, um, you know, are trying to anticipate questions, but you can't think of them all. Um, and to have presidents who, who are really interested, um, and asking a lot of questions. Um, president Bush did that. President Obama did that. Um, I don't know about president Biden, but, um, intellectual curiosity is really important. So you don't, um, you don't jump to conclusions too soon. Um, and then I'd say confidence because, um, only the hardest decisions come to a president. You know, I served on the deputies committee of the national security council. Um, we made a bunch of decisions ourselves. Um, and then the principals, right. The cabinet members, um, you know, one level up from the deputies, they made decisions themselves. Um, and it was only those toughest decisions that went to a president. Um, and the decisions that are going to presidents don't have easy answers. So, 
you know, at the end of the day, once you've asked all those questions um, and once you've been fully informed, you know, you got to make a call. Um, you can't stall. So, so I think confidence, self-confidence is also an important characteristic. We're um, talking to Michael Morell, former CIA acting director, former CIA deputy director, uh, host of Intelligence Matters, the podcast. We're talking a year since the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, Michael, when we spoke last year, you were concerned about how this makes the, U- the outside optics, how this made the U.S. look to adversaries and allies alike. You were concerned about what would be transpiring on the ground there. Um, how do you look at things now a year later? What is better than you thought it might be? What is worse than you thought it might be in terms of uh, what unfolded last August and, and how it impacts us today? So I think another great question, Moshe. Uh, I think in general, we're, we are where I thought we would be. Um, first of all, this is not um, Taliban 2.0. This is the original Taliban in terms of how it's governing, in terms of how it's dealing with its people, in terms of how it's dealing with women. Um, I had no doubt that that they would welcome Al Qaeda in the country, and you, you know they clearly have. Um, um, you know, perhaps they would, they would not be in favor of Al Qaeda conducting attacks on the United States from Afghanistan. Um, but they have certainly welcomed them back in the country. Um, I think what, what, what what you're saying, by the way, when you say not Al Qaeda 2.0, Al Qaeda made a whole bunch of promises, uh, sorry, Al Taliban made a whole bunch of promises, uh, last summer. Oh, this is the new look Taliban. We respect women. We're approaching this differently. And it turns out that they're the same as they were 20 years ago. Absolutely. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, um, and I'd say the thing that, that surprises me is I was concerned that once we left Afghanistan, we would lose our focus on Afghanistan, um, from, from an intelligence perspective and from, you know, we would, we would, our, our attention would go elsewhere. Um, and I think the, the, the thing that made me perhaps feel the best about the Zawahiri operation was um, that concern on my part, um, you know, turned out not to be right. And that is a really, I'm glad I was wrong about that. Hmm. So that's really the only thing that surprised me so far. And, and as far as the images that we saw last summer, and I wonder if they play a role in how Putin uh, interacted with with Ukraine, but just the image of American weakness, the people running down the runway, the feeling that we sort of left be- with a tail between our legs. Um, what what is your sense of how the it, how that changed, if any, how our adversaries and allies look at the U.S. now one year in? So I, there's no doubt in my mind that when. Putin made the decision to invade Ukraine, one of the things that was on his mind was our withdrawal from Afghanistan, both a decision to leave as well as the circumstances under which we left and how weak that made us look. There's no doubt in my mind that 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 was a factor that that, you know, was kind of a a, on the the plus side of the column in terms of invading Ukraine. Right. Um, his expectation was that we were so weak that we wouldn't respond. Um, so, you know, he was wrong about that. Um, um, but, you know, I'm sure the Chinese still see it as weakness, right? Our having left, uh, left Afghanistan. 
As far as uh, one final question here, when it comes to Afghanistan, when we spoke last summer, um, you were expressing concern over uh, some of the Afghans you had uh, worked with, interpreters, et cetera, getting out of the country. Um, where does that stand today? I understand that there's still people who worked with the U.S. a year later that are still trying to get out of Afghanistan. Um, what what do you know about that? And um, where where does that stand? And is that something that the U.S. and Taliban cooperate on these days? So I don't think we cooperate with the Taliban on that. Um, I think many of these people are hidden from the Taliban. Um, but there are there are um, it's a very large number of people um, who worked for the U.S. government um, in good faith um, with the promise that they would be taken care of. Um, who are still inside Afghanistan and were not able to get out because of the circumstances under which we left. Uh, there are NGOs. There are groups working very hard to get those people out. The U.S. government is supportive of the of those efforts, but um, we still have a way to go. Do you think the U.S. is doing enough? Is the government doing enough to uh, help those who helped us? Um, we're limited in what we can do. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say we, you know, um, I don't know everything that we're doing. Uh, I probably shouldn't know everything that we're doing. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know the answers to that question, but um, I won't feel good about it until every Afghan who worked for us, who wants to leave, you know, perhaps some of them don't want to leave, um, but who wants to leave is out. No man left on the battlefield, right? It's the same. It's the same dynamic. Question, since we sort of just brought it up, I understand presidents are eligible for intelligence briefings uh, following yeah. their time yes, in yes. office. W- yes. What about you? Do you still, like, are no. you privy to anything, Michael? No, I am not privy to anything at all. Um, and, you know, I like it that way. So, so. <laughs> Why? Does it help you sleep I, better at night? No, 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 no. So I still have my security clearance, right? And, and I have my security clearance. Um, so that current directors and deputy directors can talk to me, right. And can confide in me and I can, you know, they can ask me for my, my advice. Right. Um, that's why I have my clearances. There are some people who have clearances who go in and ask for briefings. I don't do that. Um, and I don't do that because I do things like this. Right. And I I have my own podcast and I'm a commentator on CBS news and I don't want the responsibility of having to um, differentiate between something that's classified, right, um, and what I want to say publicly. So this way I know, right, that what I'm saying is based on open source information and I don't have to worry about the whole classified thing. It makes me feel much better. I actually, now I have a follow-up for you on that, which is, yeah. so when I go to dinner or drinks with former colleagues, we'll recount yeah. certain stories and be like, oh, can yeah. you believe X is now here? Why? Sure. So you, you come from a world where there's security clearances on a need to know basis. When you have dinner or drinks with old colleagues, how do you go about being like, well, hold on, did they have clearance for that story? Because I have a great follow up. Like, is it is it a more complicated process to get a drink with a colleague with a former colleague for you, Michael? Um, no, because you know where the lines are. You know who worked on what. Um, at least okay. I do. Right. At least I do. Um, and, you know, when I talk to current when I talk to people who currently work there, right? And they, 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 you know, want to tell me something. I say, stop, <laughs> you know, I don't have a need to know. I don't have a need to know, right? Don't tell me anything. You know, I work for CBS. Don't tell yeah. me. 
Um, so, you, you, you wear a journalist hat now, sort of, right? Yes, yes, yes. They put a little media tag on me when I go to Capitol Hill to interview somebody. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. When I, I look back, I, I, I actually had ambitions myself to uh, potentially go into intelligence work. I got my master's at GW in security policy. And then uh, it, was, it was sort of kind of uh, skating between, oh, do I pursue a career there? Do I stay in journalism? And I was like, well, you know, journalism, the one thing is I could do cool things and then tell people about it. Yeah, you know, they're not that different. You, you know, they're very similar, right? They're Both of them are about the search for the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, um, both of them are, um, require sources. Um, both of them require a need to protect those sources, right. Or you won't have sources if you don't protect them. Um, so they're actually very similar. A, a topic for a whole nother podcast, Michael Morell. thank you for all of your time. You're welcome. Uh, your, your insight, uh, into all of the, uh, a number of the big challenges we haven't even got. We didn't even get to Iran and we didn't get to a whole bunch of stuff, but um, I, uh, I, I appreciate your wisdom as always. And uh, want to remind folks to subscribe to intelligence matters, uh, Michael's podcast, where he breaks down all these issues with some of the other folks who were at the senior levels of uh, intelligence gathering and operations, etc. Michael, thank you. You're welcome. Great to be with you, Moshe. I want to thank all of you for listening and Michael Morell for his time and perspective. Again, a reminder to check out last week's edition. That was the first part of our conversation focused on all things China and Taiwan. That went out on August 10th. This was the second part. And next week, stay tuned for the third part of our conversation, which will be on all things Vladimir Putin, KGB, Ukraine, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine reaches the six month point. I want your feedback on this podcast and thoughts on what other issues you'd like us to cover and who else you'd like me to talk to. You can email me at podcast at mo.news. Also a reminder to subscribe to our newsletter, the Mo News newsletter at monews.bulletin.com. Follow me on Instagram for the latest and greatest 24-7 over at at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on at this moment. And please leave us a review in the app store. Every review makes a difference and helps us grow the podcast. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.